0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome back to Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is our namesake, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us.
0: Uh, It's a pleasure.
1: I've been reading your posts on the authoritarian personality on on our website as of late, and, and the implication seems to be that you think people are incapable of rational judgment. Surely you must be joking, Dr. Fleming.
0: Well, uh, I surely that you must be joking. <laughs> <laughs> if you think you found uh, found uh, in the American people uh, a treasure trove of rationality. look at look at any uh, public controversy, uh, anything that will be reported on NPR or Fox, CNN. And what you generally see is that neither side is capable of thinking straight, coherently, Without, without constantly contradicting their own positions, much less actually making up their minds independently. And it doesn't matter what the subject is, whatever the hot subject in the news, a same-sex marriage, uh, the, the uh, infanticide, which they call abortion, uh, be, uh, Trump's wall in Mexico, uh, the very people who say, you know, you can't build a wall, it's immoral, of course are building huge walls around their own estates. Of course, I'm referring specifically to uh, Barack Obama. All we hear in public discourse, and these are people who are paid to be discoursing, that is, both politicians and people in the media, brilliant minds like George Will, uh, all we hear are cliches, sound bites, and
1: slogans. So, well, let, let, you mentioned quite a few issues. So let's let's take the issue of attacks on Trump first. So we think about what's going on in, in Oregon, in Portland. You have rival demonstrations, both for Trump and against Trump, and even in the mix are the the as they're called alt right, whatever that means.
0: Yeah, it's a, you know it's a, a funny name. I keep on getting requests. Uh, on my Facebook page and on the website to talk about uh, alt-right. And I've been turning them down because it's really uh, a very silly, trivial uh, movement of sort of dispossessed, unhappy young men. But the name is funny. You know, The American Spectator, if you ever used to read it in your youth, was originally called The Alternative. But they always explain on on their title page or contents page quote, by November 1977, the word alternative had acquired such an esoteric fragrance that in order to discourage unsolicited manuscripts from florists, beauticians and other creative types, the club reverted to the magazine's original name, that is the spectator. Now uh, this, is the, this is Bob Tyrrell and Vladi a delicate way of referring to what people used to describe politely as the alternative lifestyle, in order to avoid using blunter words like homosexual or pervert.
1: So, uh, you know, Dr. Fleming, the good old days when you could simply say the alternative lifestyle as opposed to an alternative lifestyle, yes, I suppose. Yes.
0: this is before we had alternative genders. This is before <laughs> you could be stigmatized for being, my wife asked me, what do they mean I'm a cisgender woman? <laughs> <laughs> it, it means you're not a self-invented freak.
1: <laughs> yes, you know. November 1977 was before my time, Dr. Bunny.
0: Yes, but uh, so by borrowing, my point is in borrowing the term alternative, the alternative right, the alt-right, uh, I can only assume that these rather androgynous young men with poofy hairdos are trying to tell us something about themselves. Perhaps I'm wrong, but it, it really... It really sends off a very strange whiff.
1: Well, in Oregon, you'd also have that mix of metrosexuals and lumberjacks, right? You yeah. have the, uh, the the bearded class, as as one might call them. Yeah, it must be, it must be funny at after-hours bars
0: when the two groups mix. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, such things do happen in more senses than
1: one. <laughs> but, uh, so we're joking about this, but is there anything serious at stake here? With these, with these bearded and bearded types, alternative lifestyle or alt-right types, whatever they are? Well,
0: yes and no. It's not really serious. The, the, the anti-Trumpers insist, though, that anybody who disagrees with them is a bigot. And therefore, this is, this is what makes it interesting. They, the, the, pro, the pro-Trump people shouldn't be allowed to hold a meeting or uh, express themselves about anything because they have almost forfeited their right to live. I now mean, this is we're talking about real orthodoxy here. When uh, when 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 it's not just that uh somebody else is completely wrong, but if they don't have a even you know if all the world save one were were, uh, were uh, had one opinion and only one uh, had uh, d- dissented, uh, you know, the, the majority would be, he would be no more right to, to, to silence them than they would be to silence him. All of that civil libertarian and free speech stuff, that's gone. An NPR reporter interviewed and found that most of the pro-Trump demonstrators were or wanted to go to the meeting were merely uh, supporters of the Donald. But, they said in horrified tones, some were so bigoted, they actually thought illegal immigrants should be sent home. Now, in other words, even to suggest that laws be enforced or that the most fundamental rights of nationhood should be maintained, that is the right to control your border, who comes in and you know, who doesn't, that this is now bigotry of such a terrifying type that it shouldn't be allowed to uh, express itself or, or, or crawl out from under the rock.
1: <clears throat> Do you know, Dr. Fleming, so, as a two-time immigrant myself, I feel that I have, I have a, a finger on the pulse here, but I often note that the people who are least likely to be out with campaign signs or placards saying uh, immigration is a fundamental human right are immigrants because we're too busy working or running businesses <laughs> to go out and pretend that, that our privilege of staying in a country in which we don't have citizenship is some kind of right Owed to us, right? Well, you know,
0: it, it, it's alarming to uh, to uh, to uh, the uh, left wing Democrats that there were actually a significant number of Mexican Americans who voted for Donald Trump, because these are people who have jobs and pay taxes and own businesses. <laughs> and if the media hadn't been so incredibly uh, hostile, there would have been, in fact, a larger number. You know, in in uh, in Calif- in, uh, in Portland, one of the one of the hilarious things. Uh, a group of homosexuals tried to stage a join a. They were pro-Trump and they wanted to carry pro-Trump signs in a gay rights parade. And uh, this caused an outrage. Of course, the idea that <clears throat> that Donald Trump uh, judges human beings by any standard but the cash they have in their wallet is 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 extremely funny. Uh, you know, he has a, he has a simple moral code. Rich people are good people. And uh, the reason people are poor is because they're bad. So, you know, he doesn't care. Jew, Arab, Muslim, you know, black, white, straight, gay. Trump doesn't care about any of that stuff. And, uh, and it's very funny that uh, the American people is so irrational and so manipulable by the media that, they've, that I think people have really believed that uh, Donald Trump, is a homophobic bigot, and he's also an anti-Semite. Despite the fact that his daughter Ivanka married an Orthodox Jew and converted to Judaism, but Donald is still an anti-Semite.
1: Well, I mean, we know that he also ruins the careers of D-list comedians, isn't that right, Doctor Fun? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're uh, the, the 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 Kathy Griffin uh, uh, phenomenon, you know. I'm lucky because most of my adult life I have been without television. We we currently have a TV, uh, and in fact it's quite a nice. It's uh, the when the when this overpriced thing was being sold to me, the the Sony dealer said, "You know, this is the finest small television uh, on the market." I said, "You know, small television. This 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 TV is as big as I am, but it's a." Uh, But anyway, we have cable, we have everything, except we don't watch one minute a week because there's nothing to watch. So I didn't even know... Who Kathy Griffin was? <laughs> when, she up, when she held up the severed head of Donald Trump, like she was putting on a performance of uh, the Bacchae by of Euripides, or or uh, or doing, a, I guess maybe she thought she was doing a a Salome with the head of John the Baptist.
1: Hmm. Now, <clears throat> but at least Salome had talent. I think that's the difference.
0: Yeah, and she was cute. Too.
1: <laughs> These are these, these these are things that red blooded uh, men, I suppose, care about, uh, Doctor Fleming. You know, not uh, you know cisgender types like like yourself.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> can't uh, can't you know the idea? You know, Kathy Griffin has uh, she, as they used to say, she has a a face for radio, but she has a, <laughs> but she has a voice for print. <laughs> <laughs> now, on one level, you know, her stunt was uh, simply a career move. I mean, it's to get. It's to get ratings or to get a career boost. Uh, Stephen Colbert, you know, his ratings were sagging on late-night television. Uh, I've never watched his show. I did see him a few times on The Daily Show when I was traveling. I thought he was funny then. Um, But, you know, so he's become viciously and obscenely uh, anti-Trump, and he's getting better ratings. The same thing happened to Rachel Maddow. Um, But... um, and this is, you know, it's mildly interesting that this is how you get ratings now. You, you, you completely write off 50, the 50% of the American people who are normal, and you cultivate the college educated, I- ignoramus freak vote and uh, uh, audience, you know, and that, that, uh, that seems to be what they're doing. Now, my wife thinks that uh, Kathy Griffin has shot herself in both feet, but no, no, you don't understand. Now that she is a martyr to Donald Trump, She's going to start getting. She'll have to rebuild her career on the farther left instead of simply on the far left, and she'll probably do well. Look at look at uh, you know who was the uh, the the famous comic uh, Lenny Bruce. He you know he made and then later George Carlin. They made careers simply by using obscenity. Hmm. Uh, It's not that neither one of them was never funny, but but once they started using obscenity, they got less and less funny because it's because that's it's a it's a one trick pony. Now, uh, to me, the interesting thing about the Kathy Griffin stuff and and, uh, Stephen Colbert is that these left-wing media entertainers, and people forget that's what they are, uh, they get away with this by using uh, with the use of obscenity, threats of violence, I mean, very, very sick, disturbing stuff, and what that tells us is that the Trump election... Uh, was a kind of line in the sand. It's not a line the Republicans drew or the Trump voters drew. It's a line the left is drawn. That is, if you could bring yourself to either to vote for Trump or just if you don't agree with me that he's the worst nightmare in human history, then I don't want to know you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to listen. I'm going to put my fingers in the ear. And although that, that that line they drew of course, is a uh, a line that is ever moving to the left. And this is the, one of the points I, I want to emphasize during our little discussion here, that is, Revolutions do not uh, stop once they have uh, achieved their announced goals. No revolutionary movement, I don't care whether it's Marxism or feminism or environmentalism, no revolutionary movement which begins calling for equality or recognition, it will, it will never stop without having taken over the world. And this is the old This is old saying from uh, Jacques Mallet Dupin, uh, a, uh, uh, one of your beloved frogs, who said of the French Revolution, "À l'exemple de Saturn la révolution dévore ses enfants." That is, just like uh, the god Saturn, revolutions devour their children. I actually think, by the way, he got it wrong because uh, revolutions don't devour their children; they devour their parents.
1: I well. I'm going to have you develop that a bit more, Dr. Longwood. I I do want to refer – come back to the idea of French left and right, but but please continue about devouring parents.
0: Well, you know, uh, if you look at the the great – the the big ideological revolutions, whether it's – the first would be probably the English Civil War or you might even say the the Tudor coup d'etat under Henry VIII, but the English Civil War, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the fathers of these revolutionary movements, unless they're quick-footed and nimble and run ahead of the crowd, they are quickly overtaken and pushed aside by hotter and hotter heads. The the, the, The classic example is that The French Revolution is launched by disgruntled noblemen who think that the king and the central government and the bureaucrat, the middle class bureaucrats have too much power. The aristocracy should now be running France. Mirabeau, Lafayette, and they quickly get pushed aside by more and more radical Jacobins. And so within every year or two, the revolution shifted left. And when it did, of course, it killed suddenly now. The hot-headed rebels of last year are now the arch-conservatives who need to be guillotined. And, you know, Kerensky, who is often regarded by American conservatives and any communists Alexander Kerensky as a great hero, he was a social democrat, meaning, we forget, social democrat means non-violent Marxist. His goals were ultimately more or less the same as Lenin's, he just wanted to achieve them through a democratic pro- and orderly process, not by dictatorship and mass murder. So he was, Kerensky's social democrats were, of course, pushed aside uh, by, the, uh, by the Bolsheviks. Now, in America, uh, we, we, our revolution was not a, a, what we call the American Revolution was, for the most part, simply a secession movement, not a, not a revolution at all. The the leaders of that revolution were preserving what they thought were the traditional rights of the, of, of, uh, Englishmen. But we've had a revolution, It started in the 1860s, but more importantly for us, the 1960s. And for example, we started with pushing for, uh, the, 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 the rights of racial minorities, women's rights, from women's rights to children's rights, to homosexual rights, to gender right, transgender rights, it never stops and so, for example, uh, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both said before the Obama election that they were in favor of uh, ver- civil unions and th- uh, for uh, homosexuals, but they weren't in favor they thought marriage was too far well they got they, got, they, they practically got run over by the revolutionary steamroller and and people on the left have, they have to keep their their uh, fingers in the air trying to test the air currents because if you if you don't watch it some you may end up having to be as a leftist you may end up at Fox News as the only place that'll tolerate you because in fact Fox News is a place where yesterday's revolutionaries all find a home then there's no there's no right wingers or conservatives there of any kind
1: um, um, until they eventually get guillotined, right? Like yeah, yeah. The, it's interesting, and as I said, I wanted to talk about the, the, the French left-right paradigm. Obviously, that's where we got that originally from, from where people sat in the National yeah. Assembly left or right. And, you know, you've, you've said this hundreds of ways uh, over the years, probably thousands of times, Dr. Fleming, the idea of politics simply being downstream from culture, that the issue, the fight isn't about politics, the fight is about culture. And about, yeah. about how we live our lives, not necessarily who this or that politician is. But what I found fascinating as I spend more and more time in Europe, as I've lived here longer, is how this virus is just everywhere. It's in Spain. It's in France. It's in maybe a little less so with the Germans. But uh, there's a general election on in England today. And big surprise, it's between the Reds and the Blues, uh, as, as it always is, even in, in English soccer. So... Either uh, what I think the difference from the time of the French Revolution, even though at that time it got narrow quite quickly, is it's simply a game of ping pong. But they they're they're simply the same party over time, right? They they converge, and as you're as you're illustrating, it's just a a, a, a rush of rapids after a certain point. The boats going downstream. There's more rocks. There's more water. We're moving faster. And all the, the quote-unquote conservatives are trying to do is to slow down the boat, but nobody's questioning whether we're supposed to be in this river, right? Yeah. And this goes – This sorry, go ahead, Dr. Fleming.
0: Yeah, I was going to say the, the, fund, the fundamental assumptions of left and right, especially in America, where there are no right-wingers in America, there are only moder- there are moderate conservatives and crazy people. But, uh, but the fundamental assumptions about human nature, human rights – all of that democracy there, you know, there Rush Limbaugh agrees far more with Kathy Griffin than he would agree with me.
1: Hmm. I, I, and, so, yeah. are, so if if this is true, if Rush Limbaugh is, is heading this way and we see the radicalization of Madow and Colbert, uh, are we seeing a shift in public opinion? Because are well, these people going to pull us that way?
0: They, yes and no. Uh, for, I don't. The question is, we use this phrase, it's, it's just a popular cant phrase among neoliberals and neoconservatives. I think there's no, no such thing as public opinion except in the very sinister sense that, to me, the, word, the phrase always conveys. Sinister. Sinister, yeah. Individual human beings have opinions, or you know, I would call them persons. I think the word individual is very, very misleading in its corrupted uh, moral and political discourse. But human beings and uh, their families, families have traditional opinions on things. Uh, Little groups, whether they are religious groups or cultural groups or social groups, they have sort of collective opinions, which may be true or false. But we talk about public opinion, that is, as if the populace, as if the mass of uh, mankind in a country. Um, had an opinion, this is a strange idea, but, you know, we have these phrases, well, you know, ev- as everybody knows, or today we often say, as science has shown. These phrases indicate that what, 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 that there's, there are certain things, where, or as Thomas Jefferson said, uh, memorably, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, why are they self-evident? Well, because I can't justify them or explain them, that's why. And because they're self-evidently absurd to, to a rational human being. So this, these ideas are first manufactured by the smallest uh, class of human beings, that is people who think for themselves, the thinking classes, philosophers, not, not professors of philosophy usually, but actual thinkers. Um, and then they're picked up by, uh, what's often called the chattering classes, the news media, columnists, you know, people who help to, uh, transmit a public opinion. And that, and that is absorbed in their education by the, uh, by members of the ruling class. And so what we have is a factory system of producing, uh, standardized views of the world and of human nature and of human purpose, these manufactured things are about as palatable and digestible as uh, Coca-Cola or uh, Taco Bell. And they're, 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 they're bad for the system, that is, they're bad for your moral system, and but they are everywhere and inescapable.
1: I, I think that you're talking about these phrases, Dr. Fleming. One of them that strikes me is the phrase, settled science. Which is this, oh yeah? <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest jokes ever that the idea that that science is settled. All you're continuing to do as a scientist is discover the mysteries of God's creation, and that is going to take some time. The idea that it's settled is hilarious.
0: I have a I have a friend who is a, a pretty good scientist. He's a he's a very lukewarm Christian, but he you know he does understand that there are mysteries, and um, he says he he's dubious about most science teaching that goes on. He, he doesn't think any of it should really go on in, the, in uh, elementary school or uh, in middle school and, because what you really need is, according to the National Science Foundation, what you need is a lot of math. But he said, really, science is a way of studying. There, there, are no, there is no received truth, no received wisdom. The, what science is is a method of testing and trying to find out. So when you hear people say, say on the subject of global warming, that science has proved, or they usually, oddly enough, use the, the Scottish archaic term proven, which is not English, uh, science has proven. Well, a real scientist, if there were a real scientist in, in this field of climatology, they would say, nonsense, science, science is always undermining what it proved yesterday. Because the purpose is to get closer and closer to the nature of reality, which, as you say, is God's creation, whether they they know it or not. this is a subject i'm I'm uh, discussing a little bit in some of our, our website discussions because really people say is there a, is there a is there a gap between uh, science and religion science as uh, considered as a pursuit of truth and reality. is like mathematics or like logic, uh, there, there's no ideology to it. Unfortunately, there's also an ideology of scientism meaning that their method is the only method to find out truth. Religion is bunk, the, pa- the past is oppressive, and so ever since uh, science began to pop up its head again during the, the Renaissance, uh, it has been a tool for destabilizing society, but it's perfectly possible to be an extremely conservative uh, Catholic or Orthodox Christian and yet be a great scientist. And in fact, many many physicists and neurophysiologists, and in fact, have been uh, quite quite serious believers who don't believe in scientism.
1: You you surely you believe that people have free will, the ability to make up their mind. Well, yes,
0: uh, it's, uh, it's something that is perhaps, uh, more, uh, in principle, you know, I have the ability in principle when I was 16, I could have been an okay baseball player. Uh, but you know, that's a, it's an, it's a potential ability that I never worked hard enough on. So I was always a rotten baseball player and an impossible basketball player in some societies like our own, independent judgment is a power that only exists in potential, and it's rarely developed beyond the rudimentary level of, uh, you know, common sense wisdom, like uh, coming in out of the rain, you know, uh, see when you see storm clouds gather and the cows and the sheep are lying down in the pasture, you realize, oh, there's a big storm coming. I ought to do something. Okay, that's that's exercising a certain primitive degree of rationality. But I would suggest to you that uh, that very very few people with uh, at any educational level, from illiteracy to PhD, I have met very few people that are capable of making up their own mind about anything. Left on his own, as he never is, a man or a woman are, are forced to make practical decisions based on evidence. And so, you know, if you're a farmer constantly, you know, sort of coming to grips with nature, you, you learn things. But in a group, man is nothing more than a herd animal. He is one of those cows or sheep you know, who are lying down because they feel the barometric pressure change. Max Beerbohm in one of the most famous novels of the 20th century, Zuleika Dobson, has this famous observation, which I will quote because I have written it down here. You cannot make a man by standing a sheep on its hind legs, but by standing a whole flock of sheep in that position, you can make a crowd of men. If man were not a gregarious animal, the world might have achieved by this time some real progress towards civilization. Segregate him, and he is no fool, but let him loose among his fellows, and he is lost. He becomes a unit in unreason.
1: Mm. What, some might say I mean, that's a bit too cynical for a, Christian, for a Christian perspective.
0: My view is it's too naive. I'm a uh, I'm, I'm much less sure uh than beerbaum was that individual judgment is all that common i think most of us maybe in beerbaum's day where people uh where people worked with their hands and lived on farms and and weren't subject to mass media by i think uh the end of world war 1 with radio and mass newspapers I think uh, I think probably uh, Beerbohm's judgment was was uh, was naive. There's another quotation. E. E. Cummings, I'd like to hand an individualist himself, very much a, a radical individualist. He made a skeptical guess about the percentage of individuals in human history, and he said there are possibly two and a half, or impossibly three individuals every several fat thousand years. Expecting more would be neither fantastic nor pathological but dumb and that is uh, <laughs> that is my I, I agree entirely with that assessment that every couple of thousand <laughs> every thousand years or so you might you might find a Socrates come along or a Parmenides the Greeks actually they had them in every generation. But we're we don't have the creativity of the Greeks. I, you know, you notice by the way that every time you say Socrates, somebody is saying uh, we'll add in and, and Jesus Christ, and mm-hmm. you said, well, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? Jesus Christ is God. You know, <laughs> that's not that's not a fair comparison. Right. Well, I also have the same reaction when they say, "Well, what would Jesus do?" And I said, "Well, okay, uh, we want to get from here to there, and the bridge is out. Now, Jesus can walk on water, but I can't. You can't. Ex- <laughs> you can't expect me to be God."
1: Right. Well, occasionally an apostle can if you've got enough faith to do it. But yes, that's right. Uh, on that on that note, before continuing, Doctor Fleming, I, I was reading a, a G.K. Chesterton article the other day, and I thought of you because I thought this was I could see Doctor Fleming writing this article today, but someone had mentioned. That you know, it's nice. Uh, it, it could um, be good to listen to music while eating, and and Chesterton said, "Oh, I, I don't. I think that's quite bad." Uh, and then someone threw in a comment, "Well, yes, it's probably bad for your digestion as well." And of course, then Chesterton goes on to write the entire article about. Why would anyone care about your digestion in relation? I, he was trying to make a point that music should be enjoyed on its own, not as a companion to something else. And how rotten it is that in our society you would even think about how your digestion would be affected by listening to music. So I thought you'd really appreciate that. But the uh, road to Chesterton aside, can you bring us back to Portland and Kathy Griffin through E.E. E. Cummings?
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, we, can, we, can, we can bring ourselves up to a long-delayed conclusion. Uh, once upon a time, people who did and said the kinds of things that Griffin or Colbert did and, and have said on the air, or are, that are now being said on the floor of the U.S. Congress, who are increasingly using the F-word and the S-word and everything else in, in what is supposed to be parliamentary uh, debate, They would have been locked up or in the media they would have been certainly out of work. Um, But today such people are celebrated as heroes. We have the example of Margaret Sanger who was once abominated and and constantly harassed because she advocated killing babies based on their race, based on eugenic considerations. This This was monstrous. Now of course Margaret Sanger is a saint. And you have to pretend that she wasn't a Nazi eugenicist. Everything that everyone was supposed to believe in 1970 would have been anathema to their parents in 1950. As the ideas of 1970 are anathema today because they're considered too reactionary. I gave you the example of Obama and the Clintons on same-sex marriage and the rate of change that I've seen, I was born in 1945 and the rate of say the world of 1945 to the world of uh, 1960 was pretty much the same world in many respects. But between 60 and 70, there was a tremendous uh, uh, set of changes and between uh, 70 and 80, Yeah, even more. And so-called conservative political leaders, you know, they come along, I don't care, uh, Ronald Reagan or Barry Goldwater or George W. Bush, and, you know, Ronald Reagan found found it, or Newt Gingrich, don't don't find any problem in saying that their personal hero was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a man who gave us a kind of Marxist-Fascist revolution in our country, but this is now the conservative position that you you have to uh, uh, love and, and and respect Franklin Roosevelt. It's like people in the Deep South they express admiration for Lincoln. This is something their grandparents would have uh, would have taken them to the woodshed and beaten them for. So we see that on the moral level, the spiritual level, the political level, the cultural level, can you look? It was I remember when I was a kid, but I remember when rock and roll came along, and I liked rock and roll and uh but, you know you had these baptist preachers burning the you know stacks of records and sheet music because as they put it this was going to cause the nigrification of american culture well i don't think nigrification was quite the right word but it, it was certainly the barbarization and it got it got so bad now could you imagine taking somebody from 1950 and exposing them to uh Saturday night Live or the comedy channel or, or have exposing them to popular music today or the the whatever rap is it 's certainly not music, but can you imagine uh, what, what what would be the response so within now it, within within a half generation the revolution has worked uh at this incredible rate, so that people in the in a in like a twenty year period, if you're if you're part of the revolution or you're drifting with it as the so-called conservatives drift, always they always drift to the left, then you, you, you go through, it's it's like you're a butterfly, constant but constantly going through one metamorphosis after another.
1: Well, if you're talking about Garrett and I's generation, I don't think that negrification would be an inappropriate term to use. I know it's not very politically correct, but we don't care about those sorts of things at the Fleming Foundation. And unfortunately, and I'm sure Garrett probably feels the same way, I always flinch a little bit when I know a term that comes from this so-called culture that is put out by by rap music and that sort of thing, they invent horrible dances, they, say t- they, they make up these terrible words, and unfortunately, because I, uh, this is my generation and I, I have friends th- from this age, I know what those words mean. But I always feel just a little bit more compromised whenever I do know that. I take great pride in not knowing who is married to whom uh, and who got divorced from whom, but I can't avoid the language that filters down to me from, from the people that I went to school with.
0: You know, uh, there's a funny thing Uh, about uh, a year or two ago, for some strange reason, I was looking for something on YouTube, and I found a a video of somebody who calls himself Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. Well, uh, I thought, what is this? Well, his name is Johnny Burke, apparently. He's a Brit who wears clothes that look pseudo-Edwardian, and he has a, a mustache he twirls up. And Mr. B has invented something called chap hop. And chap is, is <laughs> he takes the hip-hop, you know, uh, slang and things, and makes it, and, and turns over, oh, you know, it's, it's 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 wonderful to be a chap. You know, a, a chap always, you know, wears the right tie, and he and he's always holds the door for the ladies. And, and so it's a celebration of the decent English middle class of a hundred years ago, but in some in, routines that are derived from hip-hop and rap that I've never heard of. So there's this this famous rap thing called Straight Outta Compton, which I have never heard.
1: But but
0: Mr. B has something called Straight Outta Surrey. And and people who know the hip-hop stuff, you know, when I play it for them, they think it's hysterically funny because it's one illusion after another, but somehow made in this dotty, uh, dotty cleaned up way. Uh, it's very charming. So I thought my uh, an English friend of mine, in fact Derek Turner, I thought he would like it, but now he, he he was appalled. Uh, he doesn't like it at all because it a he doesn't like any allusion to uh, hip hop, and b he thinks Mr B is sort of uh, is parodying. The culture that people in England should celebrate, whereas I'm enough of an outsider. I just think, I think it's quite funny, and I'm going to try. To, I'm going to try to get somebody to do an interview with uh, with with the gentleman
1: rhymer. And it was always is a little funnier, uh, I suppose, that when you're an outsider to the culture because you you're not you you don't have a, a bias, an emotional tie to the material. So uh, that, I think that's part of, and it, it works the other way too. That's why the Brits can have such a, a, a laugh at us. I'm constantly reminded as I go through Europe about how often Americans use the word awesome, right? Yes. Almost right. Everyone in almost every country, when they talk about Americans' expressions, they'll joke and say, well, you know, for you guys, for Americans, everything's awesome, man. And they'll, and they'll try to do some American accent to just embarrass, yeah. embarrass, embarrass but that you kind know, of me. You know, they picked up uh, about 20 years ago
0: uh, in uh, the Greeks, the Italians, the French picked up fantastic. So, instead of, you'll hear an Italian, instead of saying, well, how's that, how, how would you think of this, like, instead of saying, benone, or bellissimo, they'll say, fantastico, or similarly, the, the Greeks will say, now, at least, in the, at least in the Greek example, the word fantasia is, uh, is, of course, Greek, uh, originally, but, uh, so, they get, believe me, in a couple of years, they'll be using awesome, just, just like uh, our kids.
1: <laughs> well, there's one last bit of uh, – uh, one last topic I'd like to just bring you in on, Dr. Fleming, before we, we finish today's episode, which is we're in the weeks just following uh, President Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris framework, which is what I'm using to refer to it as opposed to the Accords, which implies there was some sort of treaty signed when when that wasn't actually the case, is uh, the amount of people who, who roared out and, of course uh, – uh, the French president, in his classic little man syndrome, uh, tried to, to lash out at Trump. This idea of, of climate change, again, most people had no idea what the Paris Accords were about, uh, the, the framework. They had no uh, idea about uh, what they were even trying to achieve, and yet in universal outroar, uproar that was cheered on by the media was that, again, going back to some of the language we talked about, this is settled science, everybody knows dot, 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 and this entire language of climate change skeptic or denier. I yep. remember this This came up recently, and someone, as they started to hear some of my views, they, they sort of perked up, and, and they said, hey, Stephen, ex- excuse me, are, are you a climate change skeptic or an outright denier? <laughs> And having never been confronted with this label, I said, well, I'm definitely a skeptic, but I might be a denier as well. (laughs) And needless to say, the person turned white as a sheet. (laughs) Yeah, well, because
0: it's, you know, it's the same now as being a Holocaust denier. (laughs) Yes. You know, and and that's the, you know, and and so you, you, and there are vast areas of human experience and history that have been marked out as sacred territory. Inclu- including uh, including the Nazi slaughter of Jews in World War II. Of course it took place, and of course it was a, a terrible thing, but it cannot be discussed rationally, logically, intelligently, or with historical detail, because if anybody who does that, anybody who says, well, let's talk about what really happened, and who did what to whom, and let's compare it with other who did what to whom, and uh, the result uh, of such a conversation would be to put you in jail if you were in France or Germany. Yes, alas. So uh, there is no, and now, and now, really, environmental. Because if you look at the this, this whole question of, of global warming, there are a series of questions which you have to answer first. One, do we uh, do we have proof uh, that over the past Say 200 years, there has been actually warming, as opposed to going through infinite number of cycles and sub-cycles uh, that uh, that the climate goes through. Yeah, and and I think, on balance, probably it seems we're in a warming cycle, probably. But two, is it is it man-made? There, I don't know. So the so you got you got the question of is there warming? Is it caused by man? But then you have a, th- a third question which uh, which is, which is the, the actual political question. Uh, historically, over the past uh, from our experience of the past 50, 60 years, what is the best way to clean up an environmental mess? Is it to give power to ever higher levels of government or is it to create conditions which and incentives for people on the ground to do something? And the answer is, oh, to me, the uh, evidence is overwhelming and it is in fact what uh, Garrett Hardin the, the atheist ecologist uh, pro-abortion ecologist once said once described as the tragedy of the commons where everybody owns something nobody owns it and therefore nobody takes care of it and he knew this he knew this goes back to aristotle so private local ownership and a sense of a sense of being invested a sense of owning something like my house, my yard, my business, my company, and a sense of continuity. People not moving around, people taking care of their grandchildren. Uh, all of this contributes to a caring view of the natural world. And so even if, even if, uh, there is man-made global warming poses a threat, there is absolutely no evidence, in fact, much evidence to the contrary, both rational and historical, th- that, that, that really what we shouldn't be doing is creating supranational entities which are just going to be full of the, full of the, of the kind of people uh, who uh, run the European Union and the United Nations, corrupt, venal, greedy, self-seeking, and incompetent. Did you ever see the TV show from I don't know 25 years ago called uh, The Gravy Train? It's an English show. No, I don't recall it. it. Uh, I I I I, reckon, I don't I didn't especially enjoy it, but it has uh, uh, Sir Ian Richardson, who later on became very famous uh, with the uh, the the uh, program uh, House of Cards. But um, basically, Ian Richardson is a European bureaucrat who gets into, the, uh, gets into the agricultural sector because that's where the most money is. And nothing. the whole point is it's a gravy train. The idea of how to make money for yourself and acquire more and more, more and more power that you can use for your petty self-interest. And that's the analysis of the EU in Britain done in about 1970. And nothing has changed in that respect. So, that even if, the, even if the, 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 there is man made climate change that poses a great threat to us, the worst thing we could probably do is to have these international agreements. And with that, that's, that's, a, that's a rational argument, whereas the other side makes a religious argument.
1: Well, and since we, we wanted to have this episode discuss the idea of rational judgment and whether people are capable of that. Can you bring us to a conclusion?
0: I certainly can. Abraham Lincoln claimed that America was not a normal country, that is, with its history and its identity and its people, but it was based on a proposition that all men are created equal. This is an obvious reference to the Declaration of Independence, which makes the preposterous argument that men are created equal and endowed with rights, governments come into existence to secure those rights, among these civil rights are sitting on jury, voting. It assumes that people are actually capable of sufficiently rational judgment to make an independent decision on a jury or on election day. It's obvious that this is simply not true. There may be sound reasons for having the illusion of democracy because it keeps the masses more quiet if they think they participate in government. But certainly, certainly the last thing in the world you'd want to do is to have somebody like Kathy Griffin voting for the President of the United States.
1: Well, and I think that's a very good place for us to end today's discussion. As always, thanks for your time, Dr. Fleming. Okay,
0: thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation, All Rights Are Reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members, who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.